2: Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. Today, we are going to dive into one of my favorite topics, which I also know is one of your favorite topics because we get so many questions on this topic. We're going to talk about investing and not just any kind of investing. We're going to talk about what it means to invest for both the short term and the long term goals that you might have outside of retirement because While saving for retirement is amazing and you have to keep it up and you have to bump up those contributions as much as you can every year, we have goals that just can't wait until we hit 65 or 70. We might want to buy a house or a car or a motorcycle. We might want plastic surgery, an MBA, an around-the-world trip, or to help put a niece or nephew through school. The point is that Once we get our retirement chugging along and our emergency fund in place, it's time to think about all the other goals and how we can get more out of our money so we can accomplish it all. According to Fidelity's 2021 Women in Investing Study, which just came out this week, there has been a 50% increase in women investing outside of retirement over the last three years. And I got to say, that stat just made me so happy happy because it feels like what we've been working toward. An additional 49% of women say they are now more interested in investing since the start of the pandemic. 42% said they now have more money to do so. And all this is incredible, but, and you probably suspected there was a but coming, many women are still not comfortable with their money. Just 14% of women feel they know a lot about saving and investing, and only 33% feel confident in their ability to make investment decisions. Just one-third of women consider themselves to be quote-unquote investors. But here's the thing. If you have a retirement account of any kind, and you have heard me say this before, you are an investor. Your 401k makes you an investor. Your IRA makes you an investor. You do not have to be handpicking stocks in order to call yourself an investor. And we also know that when women invest, we do it better than men. According to a new Fidelity analysis of 5 million customers over the last decade, women outperform men by an average of 40 basis points. So the big question is, why is it that women still in 2021 find investing intimidating? To help all of us answer that question today is Lorna Capista. She is Head of Women Investors and Customer Engagement at Fidelity. Lorna leads Fidelity's efforts to support women at every stage in their financial journey. She helps thousands of women across the country to take control of their financial futures. She also happens to be my friend. Lorna, it is so good to see you.
3: It's so great to see you, Jean. I'm so thrilled to be here today. So thank you for having me.
2: Absolutely. Can you tell me just a little bit about what it means to be head of women investors
3: at Fidelity? Sonny, I think you actually said it really well. I often am so appreciative for my job, but excited about it every day I wake up and I get to work with millions of women to help inspire and better serve and support them at every stage in their financial journey. And Fidelity for quite some time has really been committed to doing so. And I'll tell you, Jean, I think you know this. We've talked about it a number of times, but this is really personally very important to me. I, if you want, so we've known each other for a long time. Interesting enough, going back many, many years, even before you know we started. We started talking about this money work, and I'm someone who you know has been working for a very long time. Married, had children from New York, and quickly went from a family of two to a family of five with three dogs and one cat. And I will tell you that my husband and I, for many years, took the divide and conquer approach to planning and investing. And many years ago, I joined Fidelity and I realized I needed to make my money, planning and investing a priority to my goals, our goals together. And I did so. And I had the moment where I realized my financial stress just went down significantly. And I thought, wow, other people need to be doing this as well. And I had so many women friends who are like me and who were deprioritizing it. So, you know, this mission and this work to be the head of women investors at fidelity just gives me the opportunity to work across our company and with women every day to help them do more and take make sure that their money is working as hard as they do well you know
2: enough about me and my financial arc to know it was very similar i was not focused on my own money until i started reporting about money and that it supercharged when i got divorced and i felt like i really had to take control but we have heard from so many of our listeners that once they do that, you're right, the level of stress goes down because we can't control everything about investing, certainly. We can't control everything about our money. We certainly can't control everything about the markets. But when we do step up and take the control that we can assume, that's when stress goes away. I'm wondering what questions you get from women most often?
3: So we regularly connect with women on our Women Talk Money program, which you've joined us. We, you know, come together on a monthly basis and and talk to thousands of women across the country. And I also regularly listen to client calls. I'll tell you the questions span the gamut from women who are starting out, who want to understand how much they need for an emergency savings, learning to invest. How much do I need for retirement? Um, I'll tell you as of late due to the pandemic, We've seen many more questions around managing caregiving. Can I take a break from work? And am I able to financially do that? And also others who are you know, now, given the pandemic, considering retiring early. And can they do that? But I'll tell you, and, and you talked a bit about the study, but one of the biggest shifts that we've seen, and it really connects to what you talked about, is that women now more than ever are wanting to go beyond that basic of just starting to invest and really learn more about how they can manage their portfolio and if they're doing well and different type of investment vehicles. So that's really exciting. And we just want to make sure that women have access to that
2: help. I saw that statistic too, and I did a little happy dance, but I'm wondering why, you know, sometimes we get these great big numbers and we have to dig a little deeper to figure out why is this stimulus money at work? Women just have this extra money that we think, oh, I can actually do this? Is it because we have time at home that we're less occupied? Is it because we're not in the office and our employers aren't watching us so much? So if we take a little side trip and look at our portfolio, nobody's going to be looking over our
3: shoulders. Like, what do you think this is? So Jean, I'm sure it's all those things, but I think there's something really interesting that's going on that's much bigger. We have data and studies that go back many, many years And what I can tell you, even going back to 2018, is we saw this trend of women taking steps to do more with their money and particularly invest outside of their retirement and emergency savings three years ago. And that is due to women have been on this strong education and economic trajectory. Women are making more money now than they ever have, and they've realized they want that money to work harder for them. And so I think that's why we've been seeing it. Now, I'll tell you, with the onset of the pandemic, it definitely was a catalyst for women to take control even further and do more. And you know what? If they're doing it because it's part of their day, it's all good because the reality of what we're seeing is out of all the other tasks that we've taken on during the pandemic, and I know them well, doing more with their money and investing that money towards their goals has taken a higher priority. And I'll tell you, that's goodness. Do
2: you think that the pandemic has just encouraged us or forced us to think about what's important? I mean, what's really important?
3: Yes, and to figure out what's important and for ourselves, for our families, and then really thinking through the timeframes of when we wanna achieve them and how we're gonna get there. And that's how women approach investing and developing their financial roadmap all the time. And I'll tell you, I think that's why we've seen that 50% growth since 2018, 67% of women investing outside of retirement emergency savings. I just wanted to say it because I'm so excited about it as you are. I also, as you mentioned, am excited but not surprised that we're seeing women earn higher returns than men. So when looking at over 5 million customers and seeing this 40 basis point differential, It's no surprise. When women invest, we see the results. I know, Jean, for me, I walk away and I say, I'm going to invest like a woman. When
2: we look at that 40 basis point difference, I think people may look at that number and they think, well, I'm not going to be excited about getting 40 basis points on my savings, right? Although maybe today I would be excited. But you know what I mean? It seems relatively small. Over- the lifetime of an investor though, I know it can be meaningful. Can you sort of dig in and explain that a little bit?
3: So first I would say, just in general, I think people weren't aware that women are such strong investors. And oftentimes when we ask women and men, who do you think the better investor is? Women say men and men say men. So I think right there, let's not even just focus on the differential. Let's actually just focus on the fact that women are doing well. And then in addition, the fact that they're earning at a higher rate, yes, when you're talking over a period of time, that becomes very meaningful. So Jean, let me share an example with you of that growth potential investing in a 10-year horizon. So it's a 10-year time frame. So the example I'm going to share with you, it's based on historical returns and it's projected. So of course, there's no guarantee, but $20,000 placed in a savings account, that at 0.06% interest, is going to earn you $120. Over 10 years. Over 10 years. Remember that $120 earning. You take that same $20,000 and you invest it in a conservative mix. Conservative mix will include stocks, funds, bonds, and other short-term vehicles. Over that 10-year time frame, you have the potential growth based on historicals to earn $12,795. So $120 in earning versus $12,795.
2: Is that $12,000 over and above the $10,000 or is that $12,000? That $12,000 is is your total above the initial
3: $20,000. The initial $20,000, got it. Oh, man, and that's conservative. So you just had the aha that we all have. And when I went through, we just refreshed these numbers, I myself said, oh, my goodness. Aha, again. I'm glad I've been taking steps to consistently invest. How much do you
2: think the roaring bull market has been a little bit of a zhuzh here? I mean, we're all brilliant when the market is doing so well.
3: So it has, and I think that's why, as we're looking at these differentials in these numbers, you're having an aha moment too. With that being said, that's why we always talk about the importance of not trying to time the market, how women approach investing. It's taking a step back, thinking about your goals holistically, I'm sure all of our listeners do that, and then thinking about when they need the money, what that time frame is. You don't wanna to try to time, we don't know if it's gonna be a bull market or not, but we actually know that if there's time on our side, and we have a plan, and we stick with it, historicals tell us we will do well. And that's goodness. So let's talk about the flip side.
2: We're doing it, but we don't feel confident doing it. I mean, to me, you know, I think of yoga, right? I sometimes will try some yoga. I always feel like a complete and total spaz doing yoga. It seems like a lot of women are feeling the same way about investing. We're doing it but we're not completely confident that we're doing it. We're feeling like imposters. What is that?
3: So Jean, let me first tell you, I feel the same way about yoga. So you and I definitely need to have that conversation offline. (laughs) What I would say when it comes to women is they're engaged now more than ever, but there are still many who need more support and education to take action. Only 41% said they're comfortable with their knowledge of investing. Only a third feel confident in their ability to make decisions about their investments. But I'll tell you something, what I like to really focus on is that 67% number and the progress that we're making, because what we believe is progress begets progress. And we're committed to helping all these women, as we've seen many come along and begin to take actions over time. I totally agree
2: with you there. I think this is just one of those things where if you do it, then you realize you can actually do it. And- It's not going to be perfect every time the markets are going to go down and they are going to go up and you're going to have some things in your portfolio that perhaps don't perform the way that you thought that they were going to perform when you thought they were going to perform well. But over time, if you stick with it, if you just stand by this methodology that you set out for yourself in the beginning, it's all going to work out. And that's the important point. There is a little bit of fake it till you make it. It's okay. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts
0: or on YouTube. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobeer. I'm the co-host of MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we
3: raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people.
0: You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom.
1: It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success.
0: Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm talking with Lorna Capista. She is Head of Women Investors at Fidelity. So Lorna, when we talk about where to put my money, how much we should be keeping in savings versus the market, I know it's gonna be different for everyone, but I'd really love to break it down. What should be in savings? what's short-term, what's long-term, because I think what really trips people up is where do I put that money that I need in three to five years, or where do I put that money I'll need in 10 to 15 years?
3: So let's start out, I know you've got a, you know listeners who span the gamut with just some of the foundational recommendations from Fidelity. So first and foremost for everybody, start with retirement. Aim for 15% if you've got a workplace retirement savings account and, you know, make sure that you're taking advantage of that employer match. Free money. Always talk about that. Also, foundationally, three to six months of emergency savings. Make sure that you can cover those expenses. So now we're talking about everything in addition to that. Mm-hmm. So any savings that you don't need for five years, that's when we start to look to potentially investing. For money. For money that you need that is less than five years, that's where you want to be placing it in shorter term vehicles where you can be earning as high an interest as possible. Now that can be a little bit tougher these days, but you really want to make sure that's money that you need access to. And that's typically, you want to just make sure that it's liquid. But five or more is where you really want to step back and be thoughtful about what are your goals with that money and when do you need it? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? Is it 15 years? My husband and I always had a 10-year goal of, let's say, buying that second house. And so we started to take a step back and say, what do we do and how do we come together to do this? And we looked at different options. And I want to share those options with everybody of how you can think about investing that's money when it's over five years. So first, you can do it yourself. So you can go online, you can look at resources. I know fidelity.com has them, and you can begin to put together, utilize tools to put together a mix of investments that you can invest for five years. I will tell you, this takes time. You have to do your own research. You have to kind of figure out what those different investment options are, but it's very much doable. And I simply just tell people, if you have high interest, take the time. The tools are available. And then on an ongoing basis, you should be checking in. How often? How often should you be checking in? Well, we actually say at least one time annually to be checking okay. in on those investments. But I would say to you what we've also found, particularly with the pandemic, but as your life changes, as something big happens, I get married, I get pregnant, I get divorced. You really need to be taking a step back and just reevaluating. If you need, What was that goal for? Is it still five years or 10 years, whatever the time frame was, and reevaluate. But that's an option where you're on top of it yourself. And that's a good option. But again, that takes time and you've got to, you know, invest that time both upfront and ongoing. The second is what we call digital solutions. They call it a robo-advisor. And I'll tell you, I I don't even like the name robo-advisor. It's very jargony and it makes it seem much more complex than it is because it's one of the easiest options. You basically have the opportunity to go online, they ask you a number of questions. Honestly, you're already probably thinking about it. What do you need the money for? What's your time frame? And how comfortable are you with risks? So if the market goes up and down, do you get a really bad stomach ache and feel like you need to pull the money out? Or can you kind of stay with it? That robo-advisor option then invests the money for you and it actually makes changes over time. It's a great option that you know gives people the ability also to keep on checking in but it's really kind of more automated for you. And the last, if someone's not comfortable investing, first time doing investing, or doesn't have the time up front and doesn't want to use that more automated solution, we talk to an investment professional. First of all, that's what they do day in and day out. They'll understand your full money situation. They'll talk to you about your goals, and then they'll help you. And if you're not someone who has been making these decisions previously, and it's really about getting started or working with a big chunk of money, you feel that you really want to be thoughtful about, then it becomes a great option
2: for you. I went through with my son recently opening an account with a robo, basically. And and it was exactly that. It took us no time. We sat down in front of the computer. We answered the questions together. We talked through them because it was the first time that he was kind of looking at these things. And that was it. And he does check in on it sometimes. And mostly when he checks in, he's like, oh, my God, I have so much money. He's excited because the market has been carrying him along. And I think that's the benefit of a bull market. Like if you're in it, it it can create investors for life. You just have to stick with the ups and downs for a little while to realize that the downs are going to eventually turn to ups. The question that I hear about investment advisors, about financial advisors is, can I afford one? I, you know, I, I, from, from, I hear it from our listener base all the time. I, I don't have millions of dollars.
3: Is it possible that someone will help me? And the answer is yes. And I think that women more often than men, and I hear this a lot too, Jean, think that they don't have enough money. But the reality is that you don't need to have a million dollars you don't even need to have $500,000 to get that type of help. There is that one-to-one help. One, the upfront conversation and consultation can be available for free. So I always say to start if you've got a workplace relationship with, you know, calling that workplace provider to have the initial conversation. It's often provided as a benefit through your employer. I know Fidelity does this as we support a lot of 401k and 403b, you know, employer workplace plans or your 401k or 403b. In fact, probably many of your listeners. But I will tell you, Fidelity offers this initial conversation where you can just give us a call as well. And so I always say, take advantage of that and at least explore what those options are. And don't assume you don't have enough money because I think that there is a surprise that people find when they realize they've got a lot more and there's a lot of support for them. Before we go to the
2: longer term goals, I just want to come back to the short term for a second, because I think now is one of those times when it's a double edged sword. First of all, the markets have just been going such great guns that there is this feeling that you of, of stretching for return. Like, yeah, I know I've only got three years until my goal, but look at what the markets are doing. And if I don't go into the markets, I'm an idiot. On the flip side, we've got women who feel like they're risk averse and they don't want to do it at all to some degree. How do you deal with both your heart and your head to land in the right spot?
3: You know, we've talked about this a lot, but the reality is heart and head in this game, when you're coming in, it's all about this idea of if you're having this conversation, you're trying to time the market. And no one really should be trying to time the market. And so the way that you can bring your heart and your head together is around understanding what your financial goals are, laying out that financial roadmap, which we talked about, particularly during the pandemic. People have really taken a step back and said, what's important to me? I know what's been important to me. And then they really figure out from there what they want their money to help them to achieve. And you have to, at that point, step back and think about, I can't time the market. I know that I just need to invest that money to grow as long as I've got time on my side. So let's
2: talk about the difference between stock picking and investing. I mean, you're talking about timing the market, but... 70% of women said that they think that to invest, they need to know how to pick stocks. Where do you think that that misconception
3: comes from? So there are a number of potential reasons where that comes from. I think, number one, when we're growing up, we hear about different stocks and we hear about different companies. Number of, you know, very successful professionals who have kind of talked about the concept of stock picking. And when young people start out, that oftentimes may be one of the first things that they can relate to because you can grasp your hands around a company. But the reality is that what becomes important is to understand that there's so many other options that are available for you so that it's not around stock picking and that it's more around how are you going to be thoughtful about your money and what you wanted to achieve over time.
2: One of the things that's always been frustrating to me is this this misconception, I guess, that you have to be a good stock picker in order to be a good investor. You know this about me, but I spent years on Wall Street. I was a research analyst a junior research analyst, thankfully, because I was really bad at it. I knew how to do the research. I knew how to analyze the fundamentals. I did not pick good individual stocks. I've been a diversified, low-cost index fund investor forever. Thank the Lord, because it works for me. And I am an investor, right? There is this feeling that, oh, well, if you're not picking individual stocks, then you're not real. You're not a real
3: investor right i mean that's not true oh that is so not true and in fact i think a real investor is what we've talked about before when we talk about getting to into investing that's the problem what people need to be talking about is is my money set up to help me make more money and achieve the goals i want over time where it's actually invested should become less important and i do think given you know the media And it's not just the recent media. I think we've seen that over time, this idea of individual stocks and companies that come up. It's just very relatable and you can get it. And I think the reality is we just need to be talking about all those other investment options and how they can really just help you when you put them together, help you achieve what you want. And by the way, if you
2: want to pick individual stocks because it's fun, that's okay too. Right. It's okay to have a portion of your portfolio. I mean, this is essentially what I do, a portion of my portfolio where I do some research and I buy some stocks. It's not my retirement. It's aside from my retirement. And it might get me to some other goals, or it might just be the kind of hobby that I'm learning about. You know, like I might learn about gardening or like I might learn French. I'm, you know, learning about investing, learning how to pick stocks. It's interesting because how companies work and how they're valued and why some companies even though i was reading about warby parker and the warby parker ipo and how the stock shot up and i wear warby parker glasses i've worn them for years the founders went to my alma mater i think it's a fascinating company they make no money so you know learning
3: about why a company like that gets rewarded in the market, I think is interesting. So I agree with you, but you said something that I think is really important, which is when you're doing this, it takes time. You've got to understand a bit more. You've got to be interested and you've got to take the time to do the appropriate due diligence and kind of figure out what's going on. And so that's when we talk about interest and spending the time, you've got to figure out if you have it. But if you don't, as I said, and we talked about before, there's other options. And that is what is important for everybody to know. And those other options are great options. So what do you think the secrets to success are?
2: If you had to, you've been living in this world for a long time, you've been having really interesting conversations with a lot of women on your webinars. What are the secrets to being a successful investor in 2021 going into
3: 2022? So what I would say, you know, we talked about women doing well. And we've had this great time of being able to learn from them. And I, you know, I have adopted all of these practices in my own life. So one, just taking a holistic approach, which women do really well. They build a financial roadmap. They think about what's important to them and the goals they want to achieve. And then they line their money up and they make very thoughtful, smart and risk aware decisions. The other piece is around investing consistently so it's not around these big chunks that you do over time. You can, but ideally what you're doing is out of every paycheck on a very regular basis, you're consistently investing. Third, and as important in what we just talked about, it, you need to have, I call it the basket of investments, a diversified approach. It's not about just picking one stock, but it's actually about really having a set of investments that line up to you know your time frame and how it's going to help you potentially get there. And I'll tell you the last, but I think most important is this idea of patience that we've seen. So it's being patient, waiting the time that you've set out to achieve things, and not having emotional and knee-jerk reaction as the market goes up and down. So do not, you know, go in and out, but really kind of stick with your plan and be really thoughtful about it. Lorna Capista, thank you so much. And Where can we learn more about the survey? You can learn more about the survey as well as get access to resources and to join our Women Talk Money programs at fidelity.com forward slash women invest. And I also just wanted to highlight just the special discussion that we have upcoming on 1013, which is our next Women Talk Money event, which we're going to dive a lot deeper into women and investing fabulous. We'll join you for that for sure. And we'll be right back
2: with Catherine and your mailbag. And Catherine Tuggle joins us for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. So we've known each other years now, and I don't think I've ever asked you how you invest.
0: Yeah, you know, I think I am doing what a lot of women do, which is I am invested for retirement. I have a target date fund as part of my 401k. I have a target date fund as part of my IRA. During the pandemic, I did do more stock picking than I've ever done, which was none. Uh, So I did some stock picking for some things that I thought uh, might perform well. I think a lot of us were at home with more time on our hands and and had that bandwidth to dig into corporate governance and answer some of those questions that we might have had previously. Um, but for the most part, I am invested for retirement, 401k, IRA. I have a pension that is swimming around from an older job that I need to do something with.
2: Lucky you, by the way, to have that pension. I mean, I have a couple of pensions too from former jobs. The media business took care of us in that way, but not a lot of people have them.
0: Yeah. But to Lorna's point, I was thinking as we were recording, I do need to do more short-term investing because I think for so long I just had my eyes on the prize of I'm going to need that money when I quit working. But the truth is I need money for other goals between now and the time I turn 70.
2: Yeah, not short-term investing, but shorter-term investing. And I think that's a really, really important distinction. And I know it's something that a lot of our listeners are interested in because we get questions about what do I do with my money that's going to eventually buy me a house? What do I do with my money that's eventually going to buy me a second house or take me to live in Europe for three months or whatever those goals happen to be? So we'll talk about that more in the month's upcoming.
0: Let's answer some questions. Yeah. Yeah. Our first question comes to us from Jen. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. Thank you for doing the show. I heard you on a Choose Fi podcast, and I have been binge listening to her money since. My husband and I want to move out of our home. We love the location, but it's an old house, and we feel like we're always doing repairs. We've been saving for a down payment on a new house over the last year, and we have $30,000 saved. We need to save around $100,000 to have a 20% down payment if we don't sell our home first. We like not rushing into buying a house. For example, if we sold our home first and had nowhere to live right up to closing, that's what happened with our current home. Should we reduce our contributions to our 401ks to save more quickly for the down payment or put our current home in the market and rent an apartment while we look? We currently have $300,000 in our 401ks, $40,000 in our Roth IRAs, $16,000 in HSAs, and $40,000 in emergency savings. My husband and I are 30 and 29 years old. Also, we're only able to contribute to Roth IRAs if we max out our 401ks to lower our modified adjusted gross income. Thanks for the help. Thanks
2: so much for the question. And first of all, I was with you until the point where you said you're 29 and 30 years old. You guys are doing so incredible incredibly well. You've got massive savings at this point, and you're already homeowners. So I'm cheering for you from my chair here in New Jersey. Let's answer the question, though. And in order to answer it, I just want to bust a couple of myths. You do not have to put down 20% on a home. Most people do not put down 20% on a home. I actually went and I looked for the statistics. So if you're a first-time home buyer, the median down payment, according to the National Association of Realtors, is 7%. If you're a repeat buyer, it's higher. It's 16%, but it's not 20%. Now, there are reasons that people want to put down 20%, mostly because they want to avoid private mortgage insurance. Also, in a hot home market, having a larger down payment may strengthen your offer because it basically lets the seller know that you are on solid financial ground. However, your other papers are going to let your seller know that you are on solid financial ground. I'm sure you can very, very easily go through the process of getting pre-approved for whatever sort of a mortgage you need. The downside to putting down 20%, especially when you don't have that much in liquid cash, is that it doesn't give you as much for repairs. It doesn't give you as much for your other financial needs. And once that money is in your house, it's not as liquid. It's not as easy to get it out of your house if you need it for other things. So let's just take a step back from that 20% for a second and think about maybe you want to try to get to 10% instead. I don't know how you truly feel about selling your home and moving twice, moving into an apartment. But I would say this is a seller's market like a seller's market that we have never seen. And if you are looking to get out of this house and you think you've got this once in a long time opportunity to do better, to actually bank more, I would look at that if moving twice is something that is palatable to you. If it's not, then look at what it would take you to get to a 10% down payment. You'd need another $20,000. I would try not to reduce your contributions to your 401ks if you don't have to, but maybe you reduce your contributions to the Roth in the meantime, or maybe you adjust your budget a little bit so that it doesn't take you all that long to get there. You're on the right track. Don't set yourself up for these to have to cross these hurdles that aren't really hurdles at all.
0: That's such a great point, Jean. They are doing so well with saving and to be able to buy a house in this market is such an accomplishment.
2: Absolutely. And to be able to sell one into this market is just, as I can tell you from experience, a lot of fun.
0: (laughs) Our next question comes to us from Alexis. She writes, Hi, Jean. I hope you're doing well. I've been a long-time listener of the podcast and I'm so thankful for your expert advice and candid spirit. Here's my situation. I've been working with the same company since I graduated college and I love it here. After five years in one department, I recently accepted a new position at the same company working for a new team. When I applied for the job, the application asked for my exact salary and benefits expectations It was a little uncomfortable putting down a number, especially since the hiring manager would have access to my current salary and benefits. But I did my market research and asked for $65,000, about a $10,000 increase from my previous salary, and slightly above the mid-market range for this role. I was over the moon when they offered me the position and not only matched my salary expectations, but exceeded it. They offered me $72,000 and a larger end-of-year bonus, a sizable increase from what I was making before. I accepted the position without negotiating. I was happy with the offer and it was over what I asked for, so I didn't think I had a lot of ground to ask for more. However, recently I had a conversation with some of my colleagues and mentors and they told me I should have negotiated for more. This surprised me and has me rethinking what I did. I know there's nothing I can do now, but I can't help but wonder, was I wrong for not negotiating? What would you have done in the same situation? Thanks for all that you do. Thanks
2: so much for the question, Alexis, and thanks for laying out all the numbers for us. It's really, really helpful. I think I would have done exactly what you did. You put out a number that you thought was fair, and then they beat it, and they beat it substantially with seven additional $1,000 in salary and a bonus that you weren't expecting. I would have just said thank you and gone and had a party. I do not think I would have negotiated because I feel like you already negotiated. When you asked for that high number, which they forced you to do, you planted a stake in the ground. They jumped over your stake And so, yeah, I guess you could have asked, but I don't think I would have thought to ask in that situation. I mean, there are people who say, yeah, you should always ask. You should always say, well, can you do better? And maybe they could have done better, but I think they probably felt, and and if I put on my employer's hat, if I had exceeded the offer by that much, and then somebody said to me, could you do better? I think I would have been really annoyed quite frankly. I mean, there's a good chance that the person on the other side of the table like went to the mat for you to get you additional money because they wanted you so much. So I'm with you. I get where they're coming from, but I do not think I would have done it. And it's just a reminder. I actually had a conversation with somebody in my family the other day who was negotiating for a new job and they forced them to name a number. They were going through the final interview, and they basically said, we need a number. And he came back to me, and I said, boy, I hope you named a high number. I hope you shot really, really high, because we all hate being put in the position of having to throw out the first figure. But there is this research, and Kate White talked about it on our show, of anchoring, When you name a figure or a range that is high, even if they're not going to meet that figure or that range, they start to think that you deserve to be around that figure or that range. And so they're more likely to offer you more. And he came back to me and he said, yeah, I gave him a really high number. So I felt like that was a good thing. And when they came back and when they actually made him the offer, it was higher than he thought it was going to be. And so I do think we, especially in this market, we shoot high, but nah, I I wouldn't have negotiated either. I hope I'm not disappointing our whole audience.
0: Yeah, Jean, I just wanna say that Alexis specified that she loves her job. And I think the fact that they offered you more than what you asked for is the biggest sign that they love you. I think that there's just mutual love around here. And I also think that when corporations do have that respect for you, you don't know who just got hired in that department who came in and asked for seventy five, and they paid that person 72000 and they wanted to ensure that you had pay parity. So I think that there is a lot going on with this, and I think that be happy with the raise. That's amazing that you were able to increase your earning power that much. And to your point, Jean, that episode with Kate White, which is one of my favorites, is episode 105, if anybody wants to take a dive through our archive and find it.
2: Thank you, Catherine. And that is such a good point about pay parity. I didn't even think about it, but chances are that's exactly what happened. They were paying somebody else that amount, and they wanted to make sure they were paying you that amount, too. Yep. Thanks, Jean. And in today's Thrive, the phrases to avoid saying in a job interview and what to say instead. Most of us, 55%, are planning to find a new job this year. That's according to research from Bankrate. If you are looking to make a change, it's time to do a little prep work. Maybe it's been a while since you walked into an interview, and maybe they seem a little more intimidating than they did a few years ago. What is it about Zoom introductions that feel so much more tense and awkward than a handshake ever did? Thankfully, no matter what kind of interview you are prepping for, the old rule of thumb to put your best foot forward has not changed. This week at Her Money, we've got a rundown on eight phrases to avoid using during your interview and what to say instead so you can sell yourself as the absolute best person for the job and secure the offer you want. Here's a few of my favorites. Don't say, I'm flexible when negotiating your salary. If you say you are flexible, the truth is you are much more likely to get lowballed. If you're flexible, it implies that you're willing to take whatever figure is offered and that you have no other prospects. Instead, say, my skills and experience put me on the higher end of the salary range for this position. Let me explain. Okay. Second example, don't say. My weaknesses are actually my strengths. I know we're all cringing in every interview. You should plan on being asked about your greatest weaknesses. But before you walk in, make sure you are ready for this question with a solid answer. In other words, don't tell me you're a perfectionist. Don't tell me you work too hard. These are the not at all real, so fake you can spot them a mile away, kinds of weaknesses that everyone has tried over the years. Instead, give a real answer and say, in the past, I have struggled with X, Y, and Z. When you're asked about your weaknesses, it's time to paint a picture of who you really are. For example, you could say, I love new challenges and I get completely immersed in the projects I work on, but I'm a big picture person who sometimes struggles with details. Get what I'm saying? Okay, last example, don't say my old boss was awful and that company was the worst place to work. Even if it's true, even if your boss was a nightmare, it is never appropriate to trash talk your current or former employer ever. When you say negative things about a previous employer, it sends an unprofessional message loud and clear. If she's willing to trash talk that company, she'd be willing to trash talk us. Instead, say, There are aspects I enjoyed about my former position, but I'm looking to make a change. Be honest about what you enjoyed. Avoid going into specifics about what you didn't. And think about it this way. When you talk about what you enjoyed in your role, that probably gives you an opportunity to talk about how you excelled, which is a win-win. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Lorna Capista for joining us to talk investing and for the candid conversation about women and money and so much more. If you like what you hear, subscribe to our show, please, at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.